Hello and welcome to our episode of Alive and Wellness. We are here today with the Assistant Vice President of Title IX and Equity, Will Sabio. Will, um, it's so good to have you with us today. Thanks, Rachel. Good to be here. Will you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of give some background about your experience, how you came to Northwest? So um, it's, it's an interesting journey. Um, I have managed Title IX um, and related uh, functions for several years now, previously at Hawaii Pacific University, and then at a few institutions in the SUNY system in New York State. Prior to that, I was a director of human resources, sort of rounds out my background, and, and the HR background certainly lends itself well to managing the, the Title IX uh, Title VI functions. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it, it's been a great experience. It's, it's been a great journey. As far as getting to Northwest, it is pretty simple. Um, it was something that um, popped up through Indeed. And um, I decided that it was a very interesting and challenging role. And so I threw my hat in um, and then went through the process, ended up getting the job offer. So um I've been here since last October 24th. It's been uh, amazing so far, and uh, it's a great community. It's interacting with with the folks within Northwest students and employees is just I- incredibly positive, and there's there's such a strong again sense of community here. That's great. So last week on our last podcast, we talked about power based personal violence and technology. Title IX deals with sexual misconduct. Can you tell us a little bit more about Title IX and why it's important? Sure. So it's sexual misconduct. It's also relationship misconduct or relationship issues as well. Um, So Title IX um, covers areas like sexual assault, dating violence, domestic violence, stalking, gender discrimination, sexual harassment, and then retaliation if you uh, come forward with a report or you're involved in an investigation, you're protected um, from retaliation by anyone else um, through Title IX. It's important because it's the the mechanism, if you will, that's in place to uh, make sure that the community is safe and that there are behaviors um, that are not acceptable within the the higher education environment. And I should mention, too, because sometimes this is confusing, um, Title IX protects the entire community. Uh, Certainly, you know, the focus is students, but it protects employees as well. Um, There could be an allegation between employees or staff members, staff member and and a student, and certainly student to student. Um, Mm -hmm. So again, the the, the primary uh, reason for importance is is it contributes to safety and uh, it makes the community feel comfortable um, that they they don't have to worry about um, any kind of behaviors that are protected under Title IX um, and that it certainly will get addressed. And, and that's what my role is to make sure that any allegation is looked into or at least heard um, and okay. determine if it goes through a process. All right. Yes. Title IX is really important and we really want to make our Northwest community feel safe. And so that's exactly what uh, Title IX does. In your experience, are people nervous to report to Title IX? Sometimes it, it, it depends on what the Title IX allegation is. I, I think there there is definitely a lot of nervousness when um, someone is reporting um, sexual assault. Um, you know, rightfully so, that person's experienced a trauma. I would say that there's certainly cases where someone comes forward very willingly, it, depending on what the allegation is. For example, for, for stalking, you know, I think there is a 
more of a comfort level to report with, with uh, experiencing that type of behavior. But yes, yeah, so to answer the question, sometimes there is a level of nervousness. If, if I'm managing that initial intake, it, it's it's important to make sure the person feels very comfortable and that it's a safe zone and there's, there should be no fear as far as reporting or coming forward, but we do our best. Sometimes I, I've started an intake and the person just isn't ready during the conversation and the victim may need to leave and come back at a later time. So pretty much with Title IX, you take your cues from what the victim wants to do and the victim's comfort level. What are some of the common reasons that people are afraid to report? You talked about retaliation a little bit ago. Can you explain what that might be? Sometimes when someone reports, there are others who may be persons of knowledge behind the scenes that may hear about the victim coming forward with a report and you know may make comments or re-victimize the victim by um, inferring that it's the victim's fault with whatever behavior happened. So that would be re- retaliation behavior. Um, other reasons victims, especially sexual assault victims, um, tend to blame themselves for what has happened. They fear judgment from peers. They fear that they won't be believed and, and simply they, they feel embarrassed or ashamed. Mm-hmm. Those are the most common uh, reasons why someone may not report or they may not report right away. Yeah, those are all very understandable reasons. So how do you help someone through those fears or anxieties? So again, when you're when I'm doing the intake, you, you need to make sure that the individual coming forward feels as though they're in a safe zone. You know, it, it also could be, it's as simple sometimes as uh, talking with somebody um, across the table, not across the desk. It's recognizing that the person, um, again, with sexual assault, in particular, that they've experienced a trauma and being very cognizant of that, uh, being a good listener, also making sure that it's clear to the person who's reporting that, and, and I say this often when I do an intake, it, it takes a lot of courage to come forward. And I certainly recognize that. And I say that. And, and again, it's just to make the person feel at ease that they can share. But it takes a little bit of small talk, if you will, before you start talking about why they're coming forward and, and what they're reporting, you know, just to make someone feel at ease. The next question that we have is, how would someone who has experienced harassment or violence navigate the Title IX system? Can you give us an example of the process someone would go through if they filed a report? Sure. So one one thing with, with Title IX that's important to note is there is no time limit. You know, sometimes the, the perception is out there that you need to report immediately, and you don't. You, you report if you want to report and you report when you're ready. Sometimes I, I may hear of an incident, particularly if it's sexual assault, and it may be you know a week, weeks, month, uh, six months, maybe a year later. That person may have also found it important to them to pursue a criminal track and they reported it to police, um, our university police. Um, so it's possible that there could be a concurrent investigation, one on the university side, one on the criminal side. So certainly one of the things that I do when again, I do an intake is to talk about what their options are and what they could do and um, find out what outcome they're looking for. If somebody is looking for an informal resolution and the allegation lends itself to that, then that that's a possibility. Um, very often an informal resolution is possible with something like stalking. You talk to the accused as far as the type of behavior that they're demonstrating. And again, it, it's listening to, to the victim and, and what they want to do or what 
they feel in the moment they need to feel safe again. One thing that's it's interesting about Title IX is that there's a process, but it isn't one size fits all. It, it really depends on the particular incident or allegation itself. And again, what the victim is looking to do. Um, it depends on what the other parties involved want to do or how much they're willing to cooperate or, or participate. Sometimes you could get a report and accused or the respondent may accept responsibility right away so you can get to a resolution quickly. If it's a formal process, it would be investigated um, where you obtain a statement from the victim and from the respondent. Um, interview any witnesses. It then would go to a hearing board who would determine if the individual um, respondent is responsible or not. Um, and then at the end of the process, there's, there's also an opportunity for a, a, an appeal. So again, it depends on the situation itself and what specifically the victim wants to do or, or what the victim is ready to do. Sometimes it involves the victim thinking about it and then getting back to me as far as what they want to do moving forward. Sometimes the process stops right there, that the individual does not want to do anything else after um, they hear what the options are um, mm -hmm. or they have to process what the options are. Can you talk a little bit about reporting anonymously and that how does that change the process if the report is made anonymously? Sometimes there's an anonymous report, and I can only speak at, at this moment at previous institutions where I don't know who the victim is. but. Uh, there may be enough information to still do some sort of action. I've had anonymous reports um, in my career where the respondent has been identified or the accused without any hesitation. I can have a chat with that person, but I really can't do anything without a victim. And sometimes the victim will come forward later, but there's still there's still something we can do because again we have an institutional responsibility to address any report and if there's an informal conversation or a chat that could take place about what was reported at least again something could be done if i don't have any names let's say that an area is identified um, where somebody is alleging that they were sexually assaulted if it's a parking lot uh, as an example or an area that maybe isn't well lit um, that's something that can be shared to facilities or certainly to uh, police university police or campus security, depending on where, where it is. It, it, at least it could be an area that has um, increased patrol um, or the facilities side. It, again, if it's not well lit, that could be addressed and we can improve lighting. All right. Yeah. So there's some maybe environmental outcomes that could happen if they're a, an anonymous report. Right. So the most important thing is to make sure that we we do something and we do whatever action we possibly can, even if it's limited information. It, it My point is it doesn't go into a file cabinet. I mean, if there's clues within that anonymous report that can um, require action or action can be taken, then we, we certainly will do that. I am the Green Dot Coordinator and Green Dot is a program that works to prevent instances of sexual assault, domestic violence, and stalking from happening in the first place. So how do prevention and Title IX work together? This is a great question because very often, you know, when I, I've spoken to groups, everybody wants to know what happens to me if I go through the Title IX process. And I think more importantly, the message is, how do we prevent you from getting into the Title IX process? And, you know, for for me and what I've, I've done and 
the areas that I think are important is certainly with students, you want to talk about healthy relationships, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate in, in a dating situation. And certainly there's a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion about consent, affirmative consent, what that means, and making sure it's clear that there are certain behaviors that are expected when you are in a learning environment such as Northwest so that you don't get caught up into a Title IX process or something started or happened that may not have been intended, but nonetheless it happened and now it needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. So again, prevention is key. That's another part of my responsibilities is uh, doing some healthy relationships education and as well as that uh, primary prevention of violence. Do you have any advice for someone who has experienced any form of harassment or power-based personal violence? I don't know if I would call it advice. I would say a, a cautionary item would be making sure that you make good choices, which you know may sound elementary, but it's it's very true and accurate. If you see something that doesn't look right, it probably isn't. If you feel uncomfortable, it probably will continue. So before that situation escalates, remove yourself from the risk. And certainly if you're, if you are the victim, try your very best to feel empowered to report and and step forward because uh, not only is it the right thing to do, but you may also be helping others or protecting others. Um, One of the things that I've experienced with Title IX reports is very often if there's a report about a certain behavior that's inappropriate and protected under Title IX, it's happened before and we certainly want to do whatever we can to prevent it from happening to someone else or having another victim. Thank you so much for sharing all that information about Title IX, and we are so glad to have you on our campus. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, hi there. I'm Monica Ziegel, and I am here with some good news. And speaking of some good news, John Krasinski from The Office and Jack Ryan started a YouTube channel, and it's called Some Good News, or SGN, and it's adorable. His daughters made the sign that says SGN, and it is about only good news. And it is the most awesome thing if you watch it. Just look it up, John Krasinski, Some Good News on YouTube. And he spends about 10, 15 minutes just going over awesome things that are happening in the world. And it is, it's almost a tearjerker. It is so, so good. And I believe he's going to do more if he gets enough good feedback from it, which I believe that he probably has. Yeah, I watched the first video and I had real tears like seriously it was like nine o'clock in the morning and i was like why am i crying right now um and he gets his good news from twitter he puts out a hashtag and like asks people for the good news in their lives yeah hashtag some good news from twitter so you could you could possibly post your own idea on there or your own good news on there and then hashtag it with some good news and you could end up on john krasinski's youtube channel That'd be pretty cool. I love him. Oh, it was awesome. All right. Our next story is on April 1st, one of the oldest survivors of coronavirus turned 104. Bill Lapshies, who lives in Lebanon, Oregon, celebrated his 104th birthday, social distancing style, of course. He was surrounded by balloons and family from a distance. Lapshies lives in the Edward C. Allworth Veterans Home and served in World War II. 
he was born in 1916, so he survived the 1918 Spanish flu and the Great Depression. And then in 1943, he was drafted into World War II and was stationed in the Aleutian Islands. Mr. Lapshis has been free of his fever for at least 20 days, and he seems to be in good spirits, and hopefully he had a great birthday. That is so sweet. Yeah, there's a video, and he's just like the kindest looking man, and he was just so grateful to have his family with him on that special day. Very sweet. Well, I have more good news. Uh, I think it's pretty cool anyway. Because of the social distancing, we are experiencing a revival of drive-in theaters, which I personally have never been to one, so I'm kind of excited and I'm ready to go. Yeah, I've never been to one either. Yeah, I think the nearest one to here is in Independence. Okay. Um, or maybe there might be one in North Kansas City, but that's the only one I know of is in um, Independence. And usually they're double features. The ones I've read about is the owners are like telling people, you know, to bring their own food and drinks and not let their kids run around outside like they usually do. And then they're not having their concession stands so that they can avoid problems with social distancing and that sort of thing. But I'm kind of excited. I'm ready to go to a drive-in movie. Awesome. That's pretty cool. So our last story is that the New England Patriots owner, Robert Kraft, has partnered with the Massachusetts governor, uh, Charlie Baker, to purchase 1.4 million N95 masks from China. Kraft also purchased 300,000 N95 masks for New York, which is an epicenter of COVID-19. The masks were flown on the Patriots team plane to speed up the delivery process. Yeah, I saw that. I saw a picture of that with... um... He said it was the most important flight that the plane had ever made. The mask will help protect the healthcare workers who are on the front lines of fighting COVID-19. Yeah, that's really good. I love how Americans are stepping up and going out of their way to help others during this crisis. Mm-hmm. Doing things that they normally aren't used to doing. I think the uh, factories that make MLB jerseys are now using their fabrics to make masks and gowns for hospitals as well. Yeah, that's it's so cool. That is our news for the day. Thank you for joining us on this Alive and Wellness podcast. It was great to have you with us. And we will see you on the next one. Have a great day.